0: Well, good evening everybody. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're tuning in online. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts. That's in the second half of your Bible. Acts is written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he tells the story of all that Jesus continued to do through everyday people like you and I. So I hope that you're there in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 19 in our on-again, off-again series, in this long book. That's why we've taken big chunks of it every season of the last three years. But I'll remind you that Acts is the story of how the good news of Jesus is on the move to everyone, everywhere. Every new chapter, Luke is telling us, yep, even them. And as Paul and his companions rack up more and more frequent flyer miles, Luke is showing us, yep, everywhere. But if you haven't figured it out by now in the story, the good news is on the move, but it does not mean that they don't encounter roadblocks. Show of hands, if you've been moving and grooving and you've hit a roadblock or two in your life, And the worst kind of roadblocks are the ones that you realize you can't really go around. You can't really take a detour. Sometimes the only way is through it. Paul seems to find himself in a roadblock, and it's going to look dicey in Acts chapter 19. But before we read this lengthy and strange, wild story, I want to ask you a question. What happens when a church gets a city's attention, especially by impacting their wallets? And as we look at this story in Acts chapter 19, you might start to get a little nervous and ask the question, "Well what does this mean about our wallets? Because we're talking about a church that gets the city of Ephesus's attention. And here's a recipe for grabbing headlines and getting attention. You take a dollop of church and you add a tablespoon of money and you're going to get some attention. I remember, and I had to look it up because it's been 10 years, but I remember a headline about a church in Texas that was giving away a lot of stuff. Let's wait on that one, Sherry. Let's go back one more slide. The first headline I want to tell you about is a Texan headline, not an Ephesian headline, about a crazy giveaway for guests at an Easter service. So there in Corpus Christi, guests could receive at this Easter service free skateboards for the rad dudes out there in the Bay Area, Gulf Area. They could get free Fender guitars so do you know where I was 10 years ago? I was in Corpus Christi for Easter getting me a skateboard and a guitar. But not to be outdone, they also gave away TVs. They gave out 15,000 gift bags for guests that were worth 4.5 million dollars. So 4.5 million on gift bags? Add up the skateboards, add up the guitars, add up the TVs. You got a lot of giveaways, right? Now you're starting to understand why this was all over the news 10 years ago and why I remember it. Because they didn't just stop there. They were giving away 15 cars. This is Oprah level. Imagine you're a guest coming to Easter service Sorry, we don't have any cars for y'all tonight. And you could walk away with a skateboard and a guitar in the trunk of a brand new car. There's something about church and money that fascinates the news in our neighborhoods. Could you imagine the headlines from 10 years ago, the pushback from 10 years ago? Here locally, there are several churches, it's been a new trend, that are also grabbing headlines about a tithe challenge. And several churches have adopted this new test where they say, give us actually 10%, which is that word tithe. Give us 10% for three months. And if you don't see God blessing you, you get a money back guarantee. It's getting headlines. Because every time you mix church and money, it's going to get people's attention. Now, mix in a dollop of church, a tablespoon of money. Now sprinkle in a local business losing money on account of these meddling Christians. This is what the Ephesian morning news headline looked like 2,000 years ago in the story we're about to read from Acts chapter 19. Followers of the way, bad for business. Preach one true and invisible Lord instead. Miguel's laughing because he's thinking of the office TV show bit where he says a headline that's really much longer than a normal headline. That's what you see on your screen right now. Followers of the way. That was Luke's word for the movement that Jesus inaugurated, started, and is still continuing through everyday people like you and me. It's bad for business. Because they're preaching that you can follow the true God that is so much bigger than a silver statue made by local craftsmen and sold for religious reasons. You see, those silver statues were of the god Artemis. Artemis was the biggest top god in Ephesus. If you're wondering about Ephesus and the Bible book Ephesians, you're thinking in the same realm. Ephesus was the center of power financially, spiritually, and Artemis was at the center of all of it. Legend has it that years before what we're about to read in Acts chapter 19, there was a meteorite that struck just outside of town. And so the locals saw it and they imagined that this fragment was A statue a figure of the goddess Artemis and so they erected an enormous temple that was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world and not to be outdone because this was a big and powerful city they added a theater that holds ready 20,000 people you can go see it today just for frame of reference the American Airlines Center sells out at just around 19,000. So we're talking about 2,000 years ago, a theater that has 20,000 seats just within arm's reach of an enormous temple that's one of the seven wonders of the world, and all of it orbits around Artemis. Now imagine, outside of a huge theater and an enormous temple, what are they selling at the kiosks? You don't think that they're selling little pocket Artemises. You don't think that they're not selling the big marble Artemises for the rich guy that wants to put it and bless his house. They're selling these idols. And business was booming until Paul and his friends, take the good news to the Ephesians, and now we see what happens. Let's pick it up in verse 23. This is after several Ephesians turned from their magic and their pagans and their Artemises, and they turned to Jesus, and now local businesses start feeling the pinch in verse 23. You ready? About that time, there arose a great disturbance about what? The way. I love that. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of who? Artemis. He brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So he called them together, along with the workers in related trades. And he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow, Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And by the way, the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Can y'all imagine the speech that this dude is doing at the local silver workers guild of greater Ephesian Metroplex? Y'all imagine him getting up on the mic and said, have y'all heard about this dude, Paul? This is why you're not selling all those wooden statues, those silver statues. Can you imagine If he keeps talking about Jesus, nobody's going to go to the temple. Nobody's going to go to the theater. We're going to be broke. Verse 28. So when they heard this, they were what? Furious. And they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, And all of them rushed into the, where? The huge theater. Well, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Why? Because that dude probably would have gotten eaten alive, right? Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Some were saying, I don't know what we're yelling about. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him, and he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Pause. What did the Jews and these early Christians have in common? How did how many gods did they worship? One. Oh, this guy's a Jew. He's going to be in league with those rabble rousers. He's going to say it's one God for two hours. They tried to shout him down and say, no, no, no. Our Artemis instead of your one God. Rounding home, verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, remember, which fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, and though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. And as it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. Basically, he's saying, let the guys have a day in court. If you've got a problem, sue them. Otherwise, we're going to get in big trouble. In verse 41, after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Woo! The way grabbed headlines. The way he grabbed headlines... Because followers of the way are bad for business. Preach one and true invisible Lord instead. If there's anything that our political climate has taught us. You want to sow hate. Confront their bank accounts and their beliefs. Then you get a crowd formed. And all of a sudden people don't really know what they're yelling about. They just want to yell. The way made waves by challenging cultural, spiritual, and financial status quo. And the heat got turned up on this movement. So before we move forward, I want to give you two quick principles that I see from the end of this text when it comes to conflict and the heat gets turned up. Number one, sometimes... You should listen to your friends when they tell you it's not worth the fight. Have you noticed how often Paul stands up before the assembly and he tries to tell them and reason with them and tell them, hey, actually. And he tries to win them over. They told Paul, don't even come close to the theater. 20,000 people, there's something about a crowd when their bank accounts and beliefs are challenged. That they can't be reasoned with. Now you may not be staring down 20,000 strong. But sometimes you might ought to listen to your friends. When they tell you. Do not engage. Do not take this thing to the next level. Notice I said the word sometimes. Sometimes you should stand up. And you should take the fight. But sometimes like we see with Paul, maybe it's better left alone so that you live to fight another day. That's the first quick one. Second quick one that we see toward the end. You see that all right? Yeah. Most times, you should keep it about what the issue is really about. Did you notice how quickly in the span of those lengthy verses That Mr. Demetrius at his local silversmith, local idol makers, chapter 162 of the Greater Ephesian Metroplex, took it from, hey, is business slow? to a two hour chant of, great is Artemis, and we don't want to hear anything else. It takes the city clerk, who is the Ephesian highest official, to say, listen, guys, he didn't steal from you, he's not blaspheming our God. You guys keep making it about something it's not about. You wouldn't know in our political climate today that things become about other things, right? Movies about this or that. And therefore we should yell and scream about it. Or that this policy is really an attack on our Constitution. We never do this in America, right? That what they're trying to teach in our schools is really about. There's something about the crowd that loves to obscure what's really happening, to make it about something it's not about, because fear is a wonderful tool to galvanize voters. Most times, you should keep it about what it's really about. And thankfully, the clerk stepped in and said, This is not about blasphemy. This is not about robbery. This is a civil suit that you should take to Judge Judy because you've got some lost wages. And you might say, This has nothing to do with me. And I say, It has everything to do with me, because every time I enter into a conflict, it's about everything. It ain't about a dishwasher. It's about everything. It ain't about what you thought I said. It's about how you never really trust me after all. All these years. Some people in this church have sat down with us for premarital prep, and we've told you about how you should avoid kitchen sinking. Kitchen sinking is what happens when you have something that flares up and needs a resolution. And instead of keeping it about the thing it's about, you throw everything out of them except the kitchen sink. I think there's wisdom in how this pagan person kept it about what it's really about. And the crowd disperses so that the movement can go on to everyone, everywhere. You see, here's what we Americans have in common with the Ephesians. You can keep your religion over there as long as it's there safely in that compartment. But when that religion starts to overflow and start to dip into the other buckets of our life, like my finances, that's when I have a problem. It's like we can say, Jesus, I give you my life but I'm not going to give you my wallet. Just look at how often we say, Jesus, I give you everything, and we say all this, but can we really put our money where our mouth is? For the answer of the first followers of the way, they said, of course, if Jesus is Lord of our life, and he's Lord of our finances. Acts chapter two, right as the Holy Spirit descends and fills and forms a new community of followers of Jesus, people started selling their ancestral land and then they brought the money and said, where can it be used? And they gave it to the poor and they used it amongst the others who never had land to begin with. I was talking with someone this week at our community center, and she was saying about how she was engaged with this two-week trip and stint about sustainable help with those in the deepest poverty. She said, we didn't just go over there and dump a bunch of stuff or give them a bunch of food. We were helping to create sustainable business models and farming. And I said the cliche, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of just giving them a fish, you taught them to fish. And she looked at me in one second and said, but what happens if they don't have a pole? And I just wonder if the church has failed the poor in our neighborhood, and the poor in our global neighborhood because we share only what's safe. And would the church make headlines not for spending 4.5 million plus on trinkets and skateboards, but to feed and clothe those who are sleeping outside tonight? The first church said, Jesus ain't just Lord of my life. He's Lord of my wallet. So then when we see him again in Acts chapter 4, the believers had all things in common. The later movement in the 1500s of Anabaptism said this. Why haven't we been doing this? And so they tried it. And they wondered that what if this land wasn't just mine, but it was ours? What if this house wasn't just mine, but it was ours? And they shared their doors and their homes and their food. And then what you see is back in Acts chapter 6, you see them caring for and feeding the most vulnerable and the widows. They said, if Jesus is Lord of my life, then he's also Lord of my wallet. And then... You fast forward all the way back up to Acts chapter 19. And before the passage we just read, we talked about this two weeks ago. A bunch of people heard that Jesus was more powerful than spirits. And they heard that Jesus was more powerful than even Artemis. And so people turned from Artemis. They turned from magic and spiritual practices, and they put their money where their mouth is by going back to their homes and saying, I've actually been practicing magic. And they bring their spell books and their incantations. And now y'all are saying, is he talking about Harry Potter? I'm talking about what happened then and happens now in all corners of the globe. People in poverty, people in desperation looking to the stars and everywhere else for any kind of divine help. And so don't dismiss them as crazy. On 78, there's a psychic. That we pass every time I'm coming here and there. People are desperate. People are looking. And Paul comes in and says, you've been settling for diet spirit. Have the Holy Spirit be led, be filled, be formed. And so what happened is when they said, yes, I want in. They take the diet, great value, cheapo, knockoff, and they literally burned it. And you see in Acts chapter 19, the people burned about $5 million of magic books. Can you imagine someone immediately saying yes to Jesus and being so filled and formed by the Holy Spirit in that community on mission that they said, well, I guess I don't need this, my most prized possession anymore. And they threw it in the fire. Because if Jesus is Lord of my life, then he's Lord of my stuff. This is what I'm talking about. This is what we see. To turn from paganism and to put their money where their mouth is. Now, here's our big idea. These followers of the way confronted this cultural, spiritual, and financial status quo, not with publicity stunts, but with holistically transformed lives that transform the world around them. The ripple effect from the beginning of Acts chapter 19, look, is felt at the end of chapter 19. They burned all their stuff, And then all of a sudden, Demetrius and his homeboys were twiddling their thumbs outside the theater in the temple going, Where is Joe? Where's Sally? I thought they were going to go buy me a new silver statue that I have worked up. They're not coming to get it. And they felt it in their pocketbooks. Because for the first followers of the way, it wasn't just about what they gave. Look. Look. It's about what they didn't spend. They're not going to spend their money that God has given on anything less than what God wants them to do with it. Notice that word holistically. Because if Jesus is Lord of our life, he's Lord of our wallets. And our sharing and our giving... Is like a tangible pledge of allegiance to a king and a kingdom. You don't think that the same people that burned their old books didn't start adopting the rhythm of giving and sharing like the followers had for months and years beforehand. They said, if this is what it means, well, if I gave him my life, of course I can give him my stuff. It's a tangible pledge of allegiance that I can give this to you because you are worth it. We don't blink an eye to give our taxes to Uncle Sam because Uncle Sam's coming for us and God is more gracious than Uncle Sam. But I just wonder if we can give a pledge of allegiance to our king in a kingdom. It's not just what we give. It's not just what we share. It's what we don't spend. That's what made the difference. Don't miss that in Acts chapter 19. It was the fact that they weren't buying all that idolatrous cultural spiritual stuff. So you say good thing we don't have an Artemis and I say we have consumerism. The water in which we swim is this. What you have is not enough. It's not big enough, it's not new enough, it's not fast enough, it's not cool enough, it's not nice enough, but the gospel is an economy of enough. More than that, I'd say the gospel is an economy of more than enough, because when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, he says, he has blessed you immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine. That he would, Ephesians 3, fill you to the brim and overflow of goodness and love. Do we live in a world, a kingdom of scarcity that there's not enough? Or do we live in a kingdom of daily bread? And that there's always what you need. The difference is the church moving or not toward those who have not when we have more than enough. Dorothy Day paraphrased John the Baptist by saying, if you got two coats, you've stolen one from the poor. The gospel is an economy, not just of what we give and share, but we make sure that we're not taking more than enough, that we're not spending on idols or otherwise. We may not have an Artemis, but we live in the land of luxury that says, more, more, more. This is why I love this quote from Frederick Biechner. We're two for two. Last week I quoted Frederick Biechner. Now I'm doing it again. The world says, the more you take, the more you have. That tracks. Christ says, the more you give, the more you are. The first followers of the way created a riot, not because they tried to make Ephesus great again. It's because by their transformed lives, they decided to abstain from false and fake trinkets of happiness and divine blessing their transformed lives said no to the ways of their world so that they may give a more full and robust yes to Jesus as Lord. So are you like me when I say, Lord, I give you my life, but maybe not my, how do you fill that blank in? I was thinking on the way here, do I not turn over my expectations of what my life should look like? Do I not turn over all of my wallet under his wisdom and care? Do I not turn over my heart and frustration and bitterness and anger my sexuality, my relationships, my, what is it? So this is where we got to pay attention and say, in what area of my life am I feeling a need to more fully surrender? Why? Because the more I surrender, the more I can learn to trust you with it. I'll end with a confession and an invitation. The confession is this. When we got married, I could not bring myself to give to a church financially, consistently, and as much as I felt like I ought to. That was a me thing, not an Amy thing. I worked for a church and still felt this way. And it was really weird, even when I worked for a church, knowing that they cut my checks and I didn't cut them back. And so finally, we got to a point of financial reckoning that every young marriage, I believe, has, where everything hits at once and it's a perfect storm. And you say, I think I need to do things different because this stinks. And I remember it was around that time where I felt like we had the least, that we both came to this decision of saying, I feel like we just got to surrender and then let's trust and see if God makes it. And so what happened was we began and we like picked a definitive date and we said, we're going to start giving X. And we just did. Not because Paul will later say 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 out of obligation. We said, I feel like this is a discipline to learn and to try to trust. And so not out of obligation, but as a discipline. And you understand that the tithe, which means a tenth, is an Old Testament principle that gets sprinkled back into the New Testament. And so we don't oblige it because we're under the law. We oblige it because there's a principle that seems to be throughout the whole story of giving something the first thing as a pledge of allegiance to say, I can entrust you with this. So the biblical principle is 10. And you say, well, that's Old Testament. And I say, okay, the New Testament, Paul says, sacrificially and cheerfully. So I think sacrificially might even be more than 10. So if you don't, if you don't like the Old Testament principle... Okay, the New Testament teaching, Jesus also says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Acts 2, Acts 4. Okay, 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 10th. Let's, let's, let's go back. And as your pastor, I'll say, I don't know what anybody in this room gives. I don't. I honestly don't. I literally don't. I never want to. But what I'm inviting you to is a place that Amy and I had to come to that maybe you can't even sniff 10. But what's 1%? What's one meal? What's something that you might surrender so that you can more learn to trust him for your daily bread to make it up? Like the followers of the first, what can I not spend that makes an impact in my city? I'll leave you with these questions as an invitation. Does our current spending look different than our before Christ spending? And maybe you say, I became a Christian when I was a 10, when I was 10 years old. Okay, um, is your spending more in line with the way of Jesus and his kingdom now than it was two years, five years ago? That's more than a number. That's more than a percent. That's more about thoughtfully considering How I burn my books so that I can more fully say yes to him. Final question. Are we raising disciples, read kids, with a healthy idea of enough? Or are we raising consumers with a faulty view of success? I think we have an epidemic in our country and it's raising kids with a false idea of what it takes And what it makes to be a good person. And it's almost attached to look at the job, look at the house, look at the degree, look at the stuff. What if we raised our kids for true greatness? Because as Christ says, the more you give, the more you are. The more you give of your time the more you give of your love, the more you give of your forgiveness and mercy, the more you give of your clothes and toiletries because there's 200 neighbors that don't have what we have right there and we know their names and faces. Are we raising disciples with the healthy idea of enough or are we following not Artemis, but the way of the world when God calls us to challenge the status quo so that we might say, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord of my life and my wallet. May it be for us as this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace, love, and care for one another and neighbor. In Christ's name, go in the confidence of people who have found mercy through him, keeping the commandments and letting go of all that binds you to the ways of this world. And may God come close to you and keep you safe, May Christ Jesus reward your faithfulness a hundredfold. And may the Holy Spirit be your help in time of need, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.